Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia, bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. We're across the whole spectrum of issues from conservation to appreciation. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and all podcasts are on the Freedom of Species website and, of course, iTunes. The government states about two-thirds, that's a big bulk of Australia's land, is used for sheep and cattle grazing. And according to the Wilderness Society, over 90% of land clearing in Queensland currently is to make way for new cattle grazing paddocks. The rest is for sugarcane, other crops, houses, roads, factories, etc. This habitat loss clearly impairs efforts and money to protect our biodiversity and threatened species we like to think we take seriously. Well, we can't take species conservation seriously without halting the current unprecedented feverish rate of land clearing. It pretty much throws the baby out with the bathwater. My conversations around this today are with April Reside from the Centre for Biodiversity and Conservation Science at the University of Queensland. And when do our personal choices of meat eating and the inefficient use of our land become a political one when it comes to climate change and environmental destruction? Let's not forget that United Nations report back in 2010 that stated in regards to climate change, a substantial reduction of impacts would only be possible with a substantial worldwide diet change away from animal products. We speak with Fiona Proben-Rapsey, a senior lecturer in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney about that. First off, though, is a chat I had by phone with Dr Hugh Finn, a lecturer at the Curtin Law School at Curtin Uni, who wants the regulations around uh, general land clearing to acknowledge the animal welfare implications of individual wild animals, most often killed in that process. Well, land clearing in Australia remains extensive. It's most extensive in Queensland, but it's also extensive in the other states, such as New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria, and Western Australia. And in Queensland in particular, it's clearing occurs at a, at a globally significant scale. So the most recent data we have, which was reported in the National State of the Environment report for 2016, indicated that for the period from 2010 to 2014, on the basis from a published report, there were 400,077,555 hectares cleared in Queensland. And that uh, has gone up in recent years because of changes 
by the previous government, uh, Liberal National Government in Queensland, to relax the native clearing laws in that in that state. I did uh, read that it's we're on par with Brazil when it comes to these land clearing measurements. And certainly on some metrics, the overall significance of it. What's really concerning is the relaxation of the what were relatively stringent controls, the relaxation. And now in New South Wales, there's been a shift recently as well to relax the land clearing layoffs. So when we talk about land clearing, it's probably useful to discriminate between sort of broad-scale clearing, which is the clearing of tens to hundreds of hectares of vegetation at a time, and then the sort of smaller-scale clearing, which often occurs within the metropolitan area, which may involve a few hectares at a time. Both are significant, but what we see in Queensland and now in New South Wales is the the opening up of a return of broad-scale clearing, which was something we tried to get rid of in the initial stages of the native vegetation reforms that came in in the 1990s and then in the 2000s. So what is broad-scale clearing, and for what purpose? Well, land, the land clearing is really it's the conversion of native vegetation to some sort of human use, whether that's agricultural use, industrial use, or residential use. In Queensland in particular, nearly all of the, the native vegetation clearance is to convert land to native vegetation to pasture, with smaller proportions being cleared for industry and, and resident areas. In New South Wales, um, Less is cleared for pasture per se, but it's also cleared to, to just open up areas for agriculture as well as ongoing clearing in the metropolitan areas. So when we talk about land clearing, it's, it's the conversion of, of native vegetation to some human use, and that generally involves the removal of some, if and typically all, of the native vegetation that is present. Uh, as this is an animal advocacy program, I'm just interested in that you said most of it, and I think I read the the percentage of like 95% of this broad-scale land clearing is, as you say, for pastoral purpose, and that would be directly for animal agriculture. Am I correct? Yes. So in, in Queensland, the nearly all of the more than 90% of the land clearing that goes on in Queensland is to convert native vegetation to pasture, so it is their conversion for agricultural purposes. Can you talk briefly about how it's done, like the, the equipment, just to give listeners an idea of, of why it's so destructive? Well, the, the key thing in terms of the impacts on animals is the, the use of some sort of mechanical force. So that may be, in, in the old days, they used to drag a, a ball and, and chain between two tractors, and they would just pull the, pull the, the trees over that way. Uh, nowadays, you, that's still used, but you also have earth-moving machinery, so bulldozers or excavators, or sometimes timber-moving machinery. So however it's done, you have the forcible felling of any of the trees that are on the site, and then the, the use of tracked vehicles um, across the substrate, which disturbs the substrate, generally churns the substrate. And typically, you also have some sort of earth-moving activity, so you have disturbance of the substrate. So what that means is that animals that have habitats uh, anywhere within that uh, native vegetation, whether that's within the trees, such as a hollow, um, or even within something below ground, such as a nest or some kind of burrow, are going to be disturbed and and possibly entrapped uh, as a result of that process. Can you, uh, just to go into the the details, because I I think it's quite important, give us an indication of of how these animals die then because of that. I mean, I know it's obvious, but it seems to be that 
uh, we need to hear this, that, you know, you mentioned burrows. So basically that means that animals can die from literally being buried alive and... Yes, that's right. So there's two main ways that land clearing, the removal of vegetation from a site, can kill native wild animals. The first is through some means of the uh, the clearing of the vegetation itself. So that means that animals may um, experience some sort of traumatic injury, either through contact with the machinery itself or when trees are felled. They may be smothered when the uh, substrates are overturned or the uh, hollows are turned on their side. Um, they may sometimes be burned as well because it's quite often the case that vegetation is burned. So some process, some traumatic injury or, or asphyxication, um, some direct contact sort of injury might occur during the process of the clearing of the vegetation or the removal of vegetation itself. The second way in which we talk about the way which land clearing can kill animals is land clearing puts animals in harm's way. And by that we mean that it removes the, the essential characteristics or essential features that they need in the vegetation, such as protection, uh, shelter, food and water resources, and makes them highly vulnerable to predators, uh, competitors, and also disease. So we say we put the land clearing puts these animals in harm's way because it puts them at much higher risk of, of predation, um, of contracting a disease. And also, if they do try to disperse to another habitat, um, people are often under the illusion that uh, those other habitats will be unoccupied and that they're sort of, you know, they can just move down the road. And that's not the case. Uh, often, it's the, typically it's the case those other habitats are often fully occupied. At the, what I mean is that they're at carrying capacity. And to get to those habitats, uh, animals, such as koalas, have to cross roads, so they might be hit by cars. They may have to cross by paddocks, so they may be attacked by cows. And that's not a, a joke, actually. There's a, a high rate of uh, attacks by cattle on koalas. Um, it appears that cattle think that koalas are some sort of predator. So all those sorts of harms can come to animals as a result of, even if they survive the initial clearing of the vegetation. The removal of, of or the, the, uh, at the very least you might call it sometimes, the modification of habitats if you're only removing some of the vegetation, it, it opens up areas, so it, it makes um, predation by feral cats or feral foxes easier, and it also allows for the, um, for the colonization of those areas by introduced plants as well. And the other thing is that we tend to concentrate on animals such as the birds or some of the larger mammals that might be able to move away. But the reality is that most of Australia's native animal fauna, um, your reptiles and your smaller animals and even your smaller birds, they're, they're very small home ranges. So you imagine if you live all of your life within a very small neighborhood and someone comes along and removes all of the vegetation in that neighborhood, you're not going to move. You're just going to remain in that area, and you're either going to be predated, uh, you're going to contract a disease, or most likely you're probably just going to die from some combination of starvation or dehydration. When um, individual animals are killed in a, a mass land clearing, uh, you also refer to uh, the psychological injury done to the animals as well that needs to be taken into the consideration of harm. Can you just elaborate on that for me? And then also the biotic, and explain to us what you mean by biotic or abiotic pressures. 
Yes. So when we talk about the harm that land clearing causes to individual wild animals, we can probably, it, it's appropriate to use the, the welfare frameworks that have been used for, that have been developed, say, for, for livestock or, or animals that are used in scientific experimentation. So we can talk about, broadly speaking, that their physical well-being and their psychological well-being. So some of the the ways in which the physical uh, well-being of an animal can be harmed are fairly obvious. They can suffer um, traumatic injury. They can be exposed to um, a disease of some kind that they might not otherwise have experienced. They may be predated upon. They may suffer some exposure or dehydration or starvation. So the effects on the physical well-being, whether they're from the direct mechanical application of force in the clearing of the vegetation, or sometime later as animals struggle to survive in environments that are essentially inimical to their continued persistence. Those are fairly clear and, and easy to understand. But we also should understand is that individual wild animals will suffer a great deal of psychological distress. So it's pretty well accepted now that all mammalian species have a you know, a similar sort of set of basic emotions so that we perceive some basic emotions in, the, in a similar way. And that even, you know, reptiles, birds, they have a similar level of psychological complexity in, in terms of their basic distress and understanding of their own poor circumstances, if you want to put it that way. So that that's a factor. And if you look at, if you look at the way in which harm or pain or suffering or distress is defined in the animal cruelty legislation or animal welfare legislation across the Australian jurisdictions, they all pick up this idea of pain, which can have both a physical and a psychological component and suffering and distress as something that's uh, significant, in other words, not to be ignored. And so I think that's where that resonance of picking up both the impacts on the physical well-being and the psychological well-being and the overall welfare of the animal. So that, it, you know, if you're used to living in a hollow and all of a sudden the, the surrounding 10 hectares are removed and the hollow where you've lived in is, is uh, knocked down, you know, psychologically trying to imagine the, the trauma associated with that, the fear of the predation, the loss of shelter, the sort of, if you had young with you, you know, you're the tight bond that many animals have with their young, including reptiles. So I guess it's really also envisioning a new way for us to understand animals and, and their landscapes and trying to open up a new way of understanding the harm that we cause. And the biotic or abiotic pressures, what do you mean by them? When we look at, that's, I guess, a straight sort of ecology, so when we talk about the biotic pressures on an animal just in terms of their ecology, the biotic pressures would be pressures from competition or predation. The abiotic pressures on an animal would be from some aspect of the environment, so temperature, the moisture content, the humidity. The abiotic factors are basically the physical and chemical environment, whereas the biotic component of an animal's environment is essentially the other living animals in its environment. And disease fits in there some as a sort of biotic component as well in terms of pathogen. And the other thing is that we're learning more and more about is that when animals are living in fragmented landscapes that have been fragmented by land clearing or they're having to disperse because they've lost parts of their own habitat, they're either going to bring disease to another habitat or they're going to go to habitats where they're going to encounter diseases they haven't, haven't have any immunity to or haven't encountered before. So we're looking at the, you know, the disease transmission is a real issue for, for animals. So an animal may survive for a period of time, but that's why we say that land clearing puts many animals in, in harm's way, even if they survive the initial 
land clearing act is that they're a very high risk for subsequent acquisition of a of a disease or becoming uh, predated upon. You are tuned in to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy Show. Uh, we are chatting with Dr Hugh Finn, a lecturer at the Curtin Law School at Curtin University. Hugh's current research focuses on regulatory frameworks for human activities that harm wild animals. And today we're discussing that in relation to land clearing. When we've looked at individual wild animals in the, in the past and, and currently is that we look at them in large part as a, as a resource. So they might be used for some particular purpose, anything from tourism or historically that was for uh, their skins or, or their, even their meat sometimes. Uh, more recently, it's been we look at individual wild animals as a sort of unit of biodiversity, you know, anywhere from genetics to to something that um, contributes demographically to a, to a population, and populations are obviously necessary to conserve species. So we we tend to now look with that sort of biodiversity conservation, which is really focused at the conservation of of populations and and species, and broadly speaking, of habitats. And uh, nothing, as I say, is to, to undermine the value of that biodiversity-based approach. But what we're really suggesting with this work is that um, it's been certainly the evolution in the last two decades in Australia that we take individual animal welfare seriously and we look at, you know, we've seen market improvements, although there's still improvements to be done, obviously, in the, the management of many domestic animals, both livestock and, and domestic pets. But we really haven't extended that to the way we look at individual wild animals. And one way you can see that is if you look at the legislation that regulates how we go about native vegetation clearing in Australia, nowhere in any of those legislations or policy documents do you see any recognition of the harm that land clearing does to individual wild animals. So in that sense, we say legally that that harm is really individually. Sometimes it's picked up in the context of environmental impact assessment um, legislation that might look at the indirect effects of killing individual animals in terms of the knock-on effect for the local population. But nothing really looks at that in a strong way at the, the pain, the suffering, the distress that's experienced by an individual wild animal when uh, machines come into its habitat and remove it. And this is what you want to see changed. It, how? How will you get these changed? What regulations do you want to see that could be brought in? Well, I think that basically it comes down to a requirement that decision makers uh, who are looking at native vegetation clearance are required to to identify, to consider. Um, in other words, it's a, what we call a mandatory relevant consideration that the decision makers are required to consider the harm that a proposed land clearing action would do to the welfare of the individual wild animals that will be affected. So that would be a first change, is that at least it includes that in the decision-making process. Then there's that identification and consideration, and there also needs to be some sort of evaluation of that, of the, the extent of that harm. So in other words, if you're proposing to clear five hectares of native vegetation, that there should be an onus on you to indicate, to evaluate um, how many animals will be harmed and in what way they'll be harmed. And now that adds transparency both for the decision maker and for the, the landholders or property owners themselves so that they can get an idea of what exactly will be the, the impact of, of removing that bit of native vegetation. And hopefully a consequence of that would be to encourage people to, 
to see ways in which they can retain uh, native vegetation um, as far as possible or use methods of clearing that are perhaps less harmful than, than other ways. In your recent article published in The Conversation, titled Land Clearing Isn't Just About Trees, It's About Animal Welfare Too, you state we need to revise the usefulness and necessity of land clearing in Australia and have a better idea of what is acceptable. Can you give an example, and I guess you just did, but give an example of what should be unacceptable in that um, measurement that you explained, and and what would you thereby deem necessary land clearing? Well, I think historically, the, the, the real problem is a historical one, is that historically we've relied on land clearing in Australia to, to open up uh, land for agricultural and industry and, and in uh, residential areas. So there's that sort of historical reliance and that innate conservatism from moving away from that reliance. But certainly it's the case in many areas that we can make use of areas which are already degraded to support infill for residential areas. And in terms of the agricultural areas, there's certainly ways in which we could look at incentives for landholders to conserve native vegetation as opposed to seeking to some sort of benefit from clearing that native vegetation. So I do I hesitate to say that none of what I say in terms of trying to make the basic point that land clearing does kill native wild animals. And that's not meant to be anti-landholder or anti-farmer anyway, but just that we need a, a new way of looking at the harm that the act of clearing native vegetation causes and to bring the, the harm to individual wild animals into a clearer focus and in a more honest and transparent discussion about that so that I think when that happens and when the legislation uh, is changed, that will change our ideas about what's acceptable in terms of whether it's appropriate to clear native vegetation or to rely on the clearing of native vegetation to, to support certain human uses and how we gauge the cost and benefit or cost and harm ratio in terms of now it's very much towards a sort of does the clearing have a, you know, a population-level impact on this particular species? Whereas if you're looking at it another way, you know, does this proposed clearing, how, how is that going to impact on the individual wild animals that are present there as well? And how can we bring that into better focus? This alteration of land clearing laws, would that come under like a planning department law or a, a, you, like what kind of branch of law would that be under? Well, this often uh, several decision-making bodies which may look at native vegetation clearances. Um, in the most sort of obvious and common sense one, it's, uh, we tend to look at environmental impact assessment. So when there's a, a development proposal of some kind, often a, a contention is the amount of native vegetation that will be cleared. But there's usually, in, in the sort of environmental agencies that are or departments that are within each uh, jurisdiction, there will be a, a decision-making process for people to apply to clear to native vegetation for some purpose. And it's really changing the laws so that in all those different forms of assessment and all those different ways in which people may apply to clear native vegetation, that the decision-making, that those decision-makers do need to take into account and there's some process to identify and evaluate the harm that will be caused to native individual wild animals. In many cases, there's a particular act, a sort of a Native Vegetation Clearance Act in a single state. In other states, it's a bit more complicated in terms of how the legislation and policies fit together. 
and it seems to be it's always a bit of a movable feast because every time there's a change of government, then the, the sort of raft of legislation and, and regulatory instruments will change. But at the base, it's just making the basic point that decision makers ought to take those into account. And when we look at some of the exemptions that are available, you know, whether those exemptions are too broad, and obviously we need to allow for land clearing that supports some important human purpose. So, for example, fire controls and those sorts of areas. So we don't intend, at least my personal basis, you can't prescribe any particular outcome for every particular factual circumstance. There needs to be, in my view, a way of balancing the proposed human use or proposed human benefit and the harm and often the broader environmental costs. So I think when we look at the cost, we're not just talking the individual wild animals. There's a lot of other environmental costs, salinity, loss of habitat and the biodiversity consequences, loss of carbon storage, all those other uh, harms and costs that come with land clearing. And that if we look at all of those together, it becomes harder and harder to justify particular land clearing actions when you look at that suite of costs and harms that will be imposed. tuned into 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. That was a tune by Caravan of Sun called Open Up. You can get tickets to see them live for the fundraiser Sea Shepherd is having in Williamstown, Victoria called Stand Fast. It's on the 23rd of September and I think tickets are around $20. So that's a bargain. Our conversations today are around threatened species and unprecedented land clearing in Australia. Hi, I'm April Reeside and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. April, can you tell us, I know that you're a co-author on the recent research you were a part of, uh, mentioned that a child born today in this time with the clearing rate in Queensland as it is will grow up to find no trees left in Queensland. Uh, can you firstly just describe this state of affairs for us, ju- just how severe this is for, well, not only our threatened species, but many other species? Yeah, okay. So that was a paper I led with a bunch of colleagues from the University of Queensland. Now, it, the, that particular quote was, a child born today will have no would experience no trees left in some of our big bioregions in Queensland in their lifetime. So not the entire state. It's a pretty big state. It's over a quarter of Australia. And there are a lot of trees here. But certainly in some of the really large bioregions across Queensland, there would be nothing left in a a child's lifetime. It is, uh, yeah, it's really severe in Queensland. It's one of, it is the highest clearing rate in Australia and it is, Uh, one of the highest clearing rates in the world. So a lot of the clearing that is going on in Queensland is done for high-value agriculture crops and other clearing for agriculture. Some of it 
is happening at a smaller scale and so it's happening uh, where it doesn't even need a permit under the current regulations. So there are self-accessible codes in Queensland where a landholder can just uh, assess their property themselves and say, yep, I don't need a permit, I'm, I can clear this. And that happens for clearing such as thinning uh, and taking down mulga trees for fodder and various other practices that don't need a permit. Can you describe when just going back to the bioregions, what what are what are those bioregions? So Australia has, I think, an order of about eighty bioregions across the whole continent, and they are basically trying to broadly describe an area that is of a similar uh, ecosystem. So you've got southeastern rainforests bioregion. In Queensland, we have the north, the wet tropics in the north is a bioregion. But then uh, we have Cape York is a bioregion. In Queensland, the really large bioregions are the Brigolo Belt, and they're the, the Brigolo Belts in southeastern Queensland, and that's the bioregion that has been the hardest hit in the past by land clearing, and it's also currently the one that's being cleared the fastest right now. In that Brigolo area, the main purpose for the land clearing what is that for mostly grazing and cropping so cows and sheep and uh, all of the various crops happening we spend a lot of money conserving our biodiversity don't we and putting that land clearing aside as it is the system of protecting and protection that currently exists for threatened species is obviously not enough, is it, from what I read? Can you comment on that? Yes, this is a topic very close to my heart, so I certainly can comment. Yeah, I totally agree. There are very inadequate protections, uh, and it happens on a lot of fronts. I mean, to begin with, as you say, you know, we spend money on threatened species, but money on spent on environment and biodiversity conservation has actually dropped by 30% since 2013 at a federal level and it's continuing to decline. So there's a big song and dance being made about what's being spent but it's actually not much and it's declining quite rapidly. So that process for protecting threatened species happens at the state level and at the federal level. But when it comes to um, losing habitat for threatened species, which habitat loss is the biggest factor in most species decline, losing habitat, and yet when a developer wants to come or um, a logging company wants to come and clear threatened species habitat, they have to get uh, sometimes state, and if it's a federally threatened species, they need permits through the federal government and that usually is a fairly straightforward box ticking exercise the federal government will say oh well there's a threatened species that might be significantly impacted that means that we'll make it a controlled action so the action still goes ahead it just has a few more protections put in place but it doesn't tend to stop that destruction of that threatened species habitat and you know Basically, the threatened species habitat in a lot of cases is being lost and there's nothing really sowing that loss and there's not really anything in place to stop it all being lost if the development happens on the current trajectory. So at the moment, there really isn't anything seriously in place for 
doing something real about making sure our threatened species don't go extinct. And we know this is true because we've had three gone, go extinct since 2009. Like, it's only eight years. Three vertebrate species, you know, a mammal, two mammals and a skink have gone extinct. Wow. Terrifying. That's in, sorry, in eight years. In eight years. And what are the names of those species? Yeah, so all of these three happened on islands, which is why probably a lot of people don't know about them. We had a small mouse called the Bramble K. Melamies, uh, whose little coral cay was inundated um, by rising sea level. Uh, and then it basically it went underwater and there was no habitat for the little mouse. And the other two were on Christmas Island. So it was the Christmas Island Pipistrella small bat and the Christmas Island forest gink. When it becomes more mainstream, we hear about one threatened species and we hear about, you know, a greater glider or, a, you know, a, a, a hairy-nosed wombat or a particular species which then grassroots activists are really fight hard to protect. They're successful in blockading mining interests or property uh, developers in, you know, they might save acreage for the time being, but then they're up against it maybe in a year or two when government changes and, you know, permits are reinstated. And also I just wanted you to comment more, it's not just about one threatened species, is it? It's about all these other species that let's not wait till they're threatened to act on their behalf. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, the way that our legislation works at the moment is that a lot of the controls and checks and balances hang on threatened species. And so this is a big contention because it's a very strict criteria of how we designate a species to be threatened or non-threatened. And if we decide that one species no longer fits a category of threatened, then all of a sudden there is no controls over its habitat loss or any other threat. And so, you know, if a species is kind of on that cusp of being threatened or not, if it's not threatened, then there's nothing stopping anything from, you know, losing habitat or protecting any of the threats to, for it to become very threatened very quickly. So, yeah, it is very... The, the legislation all hangs on species generally. And we do have uh, in the different states the threatened ecosystems and threatened in, in various forms. And so we do have some of that, but it is very species-focused at the moment. And I think necessarily so, because it can be really hard to define ecosystems and, uh, you know, it, it, is, it does make it really complex. But species, we can generally identify species and work out where they are and where they're not. So at least we can be a little bit more sure about it. But I totally agree. Once they're threatened, sometimes it's too late. We would really be much better off to think about how we can protect our biodiversity so that we don't end up threatened. And I was just checking yesterday, I think there's about just over 300 threatened animals in Australia. So that includes vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered animals. Uh, and that includes some insects, but they're mostly mammals and reptiles and birds and frogs. And yet the ones that we hear about tend to be the ones that are quite pretty, a lot of people care about them, orange-bellied parrots, northern hairy-nosed wombats, um, things that, you know, people can, you know, maybe relate to. But there's probably another 250 threatened species that no one's talking about and they quite easily get overlooked when there's a development proposal or things going through because they're just not that charismatic. 
Is it a, a complete redesign in our culture that you would like to see in our approach to this issue, like not just for a threatened species but for a whole biodiversity as such? Or you know, how do you see we should be advocating um, to protect these, well, whole ecologies or landscapes? Yeah, look, that's a really good question and that one is a, you know, that's the million-dollar question really, isn't it? But, I mean, I certainly believe we need to really understand as Australians what do we ultimately want? Like, what is it that we're trying to achieve? Uh, and biodiversity, I believe, should be a big part of that. So, for example, the threatened species that I work on a lot, the black-throated finch, at the moment there are um, multiple coal, thermal coal mines being proposed for its habitat, as well as sugarcane, housing developments, road upgrades. Like, so many developments are proposed for the remaining part of the black-throated finch's habitat. And, I mean, do we really want more sugar? I mean, sugar... Some people seem to think it's linked to the obesity crisis. Most of our lowland rainforests up north is all gone because of sugarcane. And I don't believe it's super profitable. Like, is that what we want? Like, do we want to build more sugar? And I think that a bigger picture understanding about do we want more thermal coal to be mined? I mean, is that what we want for Australia? And then try and really understand the costs and benefits in a real term. So the cost to nature, the cost to us, the cost to health, the cost to the budget. And I think if we really were able to stand back and decide what we wanted as Australians and a lot of the developments that are proposed that are bad for biodiversity really aren't that good for us in a lot of ways, even economically, they don't stack up. So I think definitely a broader conversation about what you know could make Australia a really good place would be needed. I'll just add also that there's a team of really smart environmental lawyers who've come together to rewrite Australia's environmental laws. The acronym is APEAL. I can't remember off the top of my head what that stands for, but um, the APEAL process is where people are trying to get better laws for Australia to protect our environment, and these are just being launched at the moment. So I think that you know, there's some really smart people thinking about how we can try and solve these issues and that just needs a bit of traction and a bit of buy-in to get up. And it's not linked to any universities. They've got experts all across Australia from different sectors, different expertise. It's a coordinated approach about it. Right, let's try and work out what we need to make this right. So it's quite positive, I think, that people are looking at it. Of course, getting it implemented (laughs) will be the big fight but the fact that there are some really smart people about who are trying to work out how to solve this issue gives me hope. April what can we do about this at the moment as an average Joe Boy citizen? Yeah very good question look I think that it seems to be in a lot of cases that squeaky wheels get grease in a place like Australia and you know evidence for that are, are around Um, the banning of live export trade. You know, a TV show showed some suffering of animals. Lots and lots of people got really upset. All of a sudden, action was taken. So I think that's what it takes, really, is for enough people in Australia to say that this isn't okay. So I think, um, yeah, it's it's who you vote for. It's telling your local MP what you think is really important. 
um, advocating for the species in your region. Actually, a group of us at the University of Queensland just had a conversation article came out yesterday looking at how many threatened species in each of the federal elect- uh, electorates and showing, you know, which members of parliament are actually representing most of the threatened species in Australia and, you know, just just to oh, have a different great. look at, you know, who who's responsible for looking after these. So I can that's actually that Yeah, well. that's great. That's actually a great tool for people to look at and then ring their, their um, particular MP and say, you know, you're basically responsible for this threatened species. So, yeah. That's great. Not just this threatened species. There are, I think the, the biggest number was 300. There was an electorate in Western Australia that had 300 threatened species. And what was really amazing is we had a bit of a Twitter storm around the article that we had in the conversation. And the Melissa, I've forgotten her name, sorry, um, the member for Durack, who was the member for this electorate with over 300 threatened species, actually got in contact with the lead author of that article in the conversation and said, I'd really like to be briefed about this. You know, thanks for raising my awareness. So, And it was one other MP got in touch as well. Sorry. That's great. It, you actually hit on a, a note there, though, yes, going back to uh, what the, the Four Corners pro, uh, program, A Bloody Business, and literally just footage of suffering being shown that enacted such a response. We never, we don't see the atrocities, really, the extreme cruelty that is that a lot of our species suffer at the result of land clearing. We, it's just as uh, Dr. Hugh Finn sees as invisible, and it's... You know, it's not nice if your home, your burrow is, you suffocate or smother in a burrow or your legs or arms are amputated and that's the reason why you die from land clearing as a species. We just don't see that suffering. Yeah, we don't see it. Uh, Some work has just come out very recently, very hot off the press, trying to come up with estimates of how many animals get killed through land clearing and it's... I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, but it, it's quite horrifying. There's millions of animals that die, and, you know, that means lots of koalas, but it means lots of bats and birds and skinks and, you know, all sorts of animals that are dying when, like you say, their homes get bulldozed. Yeah. Um, I know that there are some efforts around Melbourne where when they clear um, the striped legless lizard habitat, they actually have people going along and trying to catch every striped legless lizard that doesn't get its body chopped in half and taken to the zoo but uh, you know that's going to catch so few such a small proportion of the number of animals that will die. You are on 3CR 855am the Freedom of Species show and that was April Reside from the University of Queensland. The appeal APEEL organisation mentioned I shall put a link to that on the podcast page. The Wilderness Society states between 1995 and 2005 in Queensland, more than 10 suburban housing blocks of land size were cleared every minute. I mean, just picture that. Considering the bulk of clearing is for pastoral animal agriculture purpose, what does this accepted and unquestioned relationship mean in designing the environment? It seems to pretty much uh, remain a blind spot. How does it frame, set the stage of treatment for other, whether they be threatened, native or pest species? Here's Fiona Proben-Rapsey, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. So 
if animal agriculture frames our understanding of the landscape and frames our understanding of what animals are for, then it's also framing who gets to use landscapes in particular ways and who gets to be in landscapes in particular ways. So it makes it inevitable that animals that aren't productive or able to be used for economic purposes, such as feral camels, rabbits, dogs, goats, all sorts of feral animals that exist across Australia, that those animals become superfluous to animal agriculture. And more than that, they threaten animal agriculture. So it, it gives license to this view that they can be simply eradicated and that by eradicating them, we are supporting the continuation of animal agriculture, which is supposedly a proper use of that land, a proper use of that country. That picture enables such an invisible spiral of violence against the feral animal. Yes, so the violence that then is used against feral animals is not only invisible, but it's also seen as the correct way of managing the countryside, the correct way of managing the landscape, because what's quite ironic in some of these attempts to eradicate feral animals, like cats and camels, for instance, is that they're often done in the name of protecting native species. So the campaign, for instance, against to eradicate feral cats is done expressly with this uh, idea that we don't, by doing so we, we will protect native animals that the cats are predating on. But if you look at the, if you look at the map of Australia and you look at how, how much animal agriculture impacts upon Australia and its, and its landscape, then you'd have to actually conclude that it's not so much the cats, it's the sheep and the cattle and animal agriculture generally that is having the major, the major impact. Cats would seem, would seem to me to be fairly minor compared to the major habitat loss and deforestation that comes with animal agriculture. So for me, whenever I read about the campaigns to eradicate feral animals, what, what I'm interested in is looking at the ways in which those sorts of arguments and those sorts of cultural debates sort of displace attention away from animal agriculture as the bigger problem that they're a big distraction and that, in fact, farmers and animal agriculturalists get to portray these eradication programs as doing something good for native species, doing something good for the country, whereas perhaps a bigger question would be what would it mean to actually stop using the land for animal agriculture and returning some of it to habitat that other species can exist in so it's a very complicated cultural space and you can see the investments from particular industries framing the arguments in very particular ways. The wild dog or dingo is a really good example of the ways in which the killing of particular species is enabled by an understanding that the landscape should be used in one particular way and not another. So the killing of wild dogs through quite a horrendous violent means such as the use of 1080 and trapping and baiting, the killing of those particular animals becomes inevitable if the decision is made that the landscape has to be used for livestock and that humans are the only ones who can predate upon or use agricultural animals and not any other species. So wild dogs, if they are predating on livestock animals such as sheep or calves, 
and there is some dispute about how effective they are as predators anyway, but if they are predating on livestock and animal agriculture animals, then they are competing with the human use of agricultural animals. So the violence against those wild dogs and dingoes becomes justified by a whole framework which is anthropocentric, which determines that human use of other animals has to take priority over any other animal's occupation of the land or predation upon those particular animals. So animal agriculture frames our understanding of who gets to eat who and then whose activities are legitimate and whose have to be responded to with violence. So the attitude towards wild dogs and dingoes is really fascinating. The advocates for the sheep industry and the wild dog action plan are quite clear about the fact that they are at war with feral dogs, wild dogs and dingoes. So they're quite open about that. So the violence that escalates and that is quite out of keeping with the way in which one would expect dogs to be treated becomes legitimated through this idea that we are at war with these particular species. So animal agriculture is not just a a form of violence against livestock animals. It's a form of violence against any other animal who interrupts or is uh, intervening or doesn't obey that particular frame as well. Given the point that you mentioned earlier that 52% of the land is for grazing cattle and sheep and livestock, anything that threatens that from being a prosperous growth industry uh, is is definitely in trouble. Yeah, it, it, it's exterminable. And forests and trees, of course, are also going, going to be exterminable as part of that as well. It's a really tricky one. I think you can see it much more clearly if you live in a country area and you can see the ways in which agricultural landscapes become often monocultural. You can see the ways in which wombats and kangaroos, for instance, are frequently lying dead by the side of the road because they're having to come into the roadscapes in order to find uh, enough food to eat. The crisscrossing of their habitat with human use becomes is very much at their cost. The other ways in which animal agriculture becomes in, deeply embedded as a sort of cultural norm is the way in which aesthetically within Western culture we privilege open fields and open pastures as aesthetically beautiful. So we, we create these, these, these landscapes which are almost treeless and, and therefore habitatless as images of beauty. And it's often it's often tricky to to look at these spaces that we that we are trained to see as beautiful and think this is actually a misuse of the landscape, and it represents species loss and extinctions and eradication programs that keep these monocultures going. What must we acknowledge about animal agriculture if we are serious about species conservation and making regenerational changes in our landscape with the added pressure of climate change? I think we have to acknowledge that animal agriculture is an intensely political question. It's a subject of politics that shouldn't be romanticised as a way of life 
that is key to our national identity. Animal agriculture needs to be seen as a contributor to climate change, as in the top three, as a as a major factor when it comes to species extinctions because it leads to the loss of habitat. And we need to wrestle back an understanding of animal agriculture as being a cultural and political issue and not just an issue that is normalised as part of a meat-eating culture. You were mentioning before about taking meat-eating out of being a personal point and into a political point. Yeah, yeah. So if we are to think about animal agriculture as a, an expression of the sort of political relationship that we have with animals, i.e. that animals are there to serve us and become dinner, then we also need to think about animal animal agriculture as equally politicised. It's setting up relationships that we have with animals that determines that they be objects for our use. And this means, you know, this is quite a fundamental shift then in the way in which we would experience animals. We would have to admit that if we're going to really take the environment seriously and take climate change seriously, then we also have to look at whether or not we can sustain animal agriculture in its current form at all. You are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, and that wraps up our various chats around the issues of threatened species and uh, land clearing. I'd like to thank very much Hugh Finn, April Reside and Fiona Proben-Rapsey. I shall put on the podcast link various uh, links and, and interesting information on all those issues on the actual podcast as well. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook or Twitter. Uh, coming up next is In Psychedelia, uh, a great show that discusses all things drugs, really. Before I run off, and hopefully the vegan bake sale barbecue is still on at Collingwood Bunnings, there's a great 3CR fundraiser night happening, and they're actually going to put on that great new film, Battle of the Sexes. It's actually about the tennis player Billie Jean King and a famous match that was set up. See you next week. Hello? Listen, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-like feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes. You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withcast Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm. For a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Call Barbie. Time it's on. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.